Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It is my great honor today to welcome Christopher Paul Clohesse to the show. Christopher Clohesse is a South African-born Catholic priest who obtained his PhD at the Pontifical Institute for Arabic and Islamic Studies in Rome and is now a resident faculty member in Shi'i Islamic Studies and Quran and Islamic Ethics at the same institute. He is the author of Fatima, Daughter of Muhammad, and Half of My Heart, The Narratives of Zainab, Daughter of Ali. Today, we are discussing his new book, Angels Hastening, The Karbala Dreams, which was published in 2021 with Georgia's Press. Father Klohesi, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Could you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the book? Well, the inspiration is sort of fragmentary in the sense that I, I wrote um, a book on Fatima, which was um, my PhD thesis, which I published. And then by sheer chance, um, really as the result of a, a stupid conversation at a dinner table, I volunteered to write a second book. Um, thinking that those talking to me were also going to write books, but nobody did. It was just me. So came up with a second book on Zainab, the granddaughter of the Prophet of Islam. And this third book was really, to be honest, a collection of anecdotes and stories that I found in my previous research and which I'd sort of put into a file somewhere on my computer, thinking that eventually, years from now, I would return in perhaps in my retirement and just tinker a bit with the text. But I I took great interest in the question of dreams because dreams are obviously an important thing, not just in religion, but, you know, in psychology and psychoanalysis. And of course, I also took interest in, in the question of angels, because angels play a far more significant role in Islam than they do in Christianity and Judaism. But nonetheless, they are, they are an ever-present facet of, of religious faith. And it was, it was just a combination of things I liked. And, you know, I have to say with great honesty that writing a book for me is not particularly hard work. That sounds arrogant, but what I mean is it's a bit of a hobby. The way some people paint or play music, well, I just write because I enjoy doing it. So it's not as if it's it's really tough going. I keep it going on a back burner somewhere and eventually come up with the book. So yeah, the, the inspiration was was a result of a number of years of research that all came together finally in this text. And who is the intended audience for the book? I've often been asked this question about all my books, and I'm not entirely sure. Not Muslims in theory, because your average Shia Muslim doesn't need a Catholic priest to explain his or her religion. Um, I I really, when I began writing uh, on Fatima, it was because I was quite distressed by the fact that there was so little written in the Western world based on Arabic sources, but in a language that was accessible to millions of even Muslims who don't speak Arabic. And I thought that this would also perhaps introduce an interesting female religious personality to um, a Western world, specifically a Catholic audience, which is not unused to important female religious figures. Um, I I would say that my audience is primarily non-Muslim because I'm attempting to introduce a little bit of what I think is interesting Shia history, Shia spirituality, and just Shia Islam generally to an audience that perhaps doesn't 
ordinarily come across this sort of um, um, narrative and this sort of spirituality. So I know that many Muslims, many Shia Muslims read my books and they enjoy them. Um, I I haven't yet persuaded even my own family to read them yet, but eventually I will because it really was written uh, to introduce a bit of Middle Eastern history that's not often heard although it's witnessed. So, the, you know, the processions in memory of Hussein are witnessed, but not understood fully by Western audience. So perhaps I'm really writing for them. Can we first talk about the title of the book? Why Angels Hastening? So the, the, the book is, is partly about angelic visitations. That is the idea um, of of an angel bringing a message. Now, this is a common idea in in Judeo-Christian spirituality already, and it's often just an analogy for for God speaking. But in the Islamic text that I studied, the movements of the angels, and especially the angel Jibril, are are really quite interesting. And the Arabic verbs used to describe the movements are quite enticing for me. So there's 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 an anxiety on the part of the angel that he or she or however one wants to describe an angel needs to get this message delivered and understood. That's quite a common theme in Islam to begin with, that the revelation needs to be revealed and understood and accepted. So there are particular passages in which um, Jibril kind of soars down. He swoops down and then rockets back to the heavens and comes back a second time because the message has not been understood. There are also moments where he extends his wing or beats with his wing on the ground in in an attempt to make something known. Now, in the Quran, in um, chapter 79, there is a line of Arabic which the English um, translator and interpreter Pictol translates as angels in a hurry or angels hastening. And I thought that really does encapsulate the amount of movement there is in the story between between heaven and earth, between the, the angel and the one that the angel is speaking to. So it, it captures that for me, um, especially in some of the Arabic verbs that are used by the texts. And you use a word in the book that was new for me, angelology. Could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the role of angels in Islam, maybe a, a in contrast to the role of angels in Christianity? Okay, well, besides the fact that angelology is quite hard to say, I'm not sure if it's an actual word. It's just a word I use to describe, I suppose, the study of angels or the examination of angels. Um, You know, angels, however we describe them. So the first thing is, of course, the word angel doesn't describe a nature. It describes a function. Angels are described as angels because they are messengers, and that's what the word means. Their nature is a different thing. They're quite important in the Hebrew scriptures, in that angels are are seen as messengers who bring a particular piece of information, generally not public revelation, but private revelation to various individuals. So people dream... uh, either dream at night, asleep, and they see angels or hear angels, or they have waking visions of angels. And the angels are always generally bringing either very bad news or very good news. It's never anything in between that. It's either, you know, the announcement of the birth of some hero, or it's the warning of some terrible uh, calamity. In the New Testament, the Christian scriptures 
there's there's the presence of Joseph, the the husband of Mary, and he's a dreamer. He has visions or dreams of angels again, who bring dreams of announcements uh, of great news or of or of warning. Mary herself in the Christian scriptures is the recipient of an angelic visitation, once again bringing good news. So the impression that you get, of course, is that angels, messengers are quite prominent in the scriptures. They're far more prominent in Islam, because in Islam, angels are directly connected to revelation, divine revelation. That is, God reveals in the Islamic uh, scheme of things, reveals through an angel, an angelic um, intermediary called Jibril or Gabriel, so that the recipient of information never actually hears God, but just the voice of of this angelic messenger. So in, in Christianity and Judaism, angels don't really have much to do with revelation. They announce things. But in Islam, an angel is directly and primarily involved in the the reception of of divine revelation and so they're kind of quite enfolded into the text and quite enfolded into islamic life they have a massive hierarchy of angels and angels are understood as being involved on a daily and in a practical way with human life Um, and so there's a far greater stress in fact just one more point on this and that is that unlike in the christian creed where angels are not mentioned, in the Islamic creed, angels are the second level of belief. As a Muslim, you have to believe first in God, secondly in his angels. That's unheard of in Christianity, but it's very, very powerful in Islam. And so the subtitle of the book is The Karbala Dreams. Could you talk a little bit about what the Karbala Dreams are? Karbala, of course, is this watershed event in the very unhappy history of Shia Sunni Islam. Shia Islam, the minority, the family of the Prophet, against Sunni Islam, the majority, um, which is the follower of tradition, really. That's what, what, what they are. And it's the, it's the revolt, the revolution of the grandson of Muhammad, al-Hussein, against what he perceives as particularly bad leadership, not just politically, but more especially Islamic leadership of the of the family or the house of islam and so he rebels against this from a spiritual point of view particularly that it's because islam should not be led by one who is not living faithfully the principles of islamic faith and it leads of course to his massacre he's he, him and his family and his companions are killed by a vastly superior sunni army um sent by the the caliph, who at that stage is the famous or infamous, if you're a Shia, the infamous Yazid, son of Muawiyah. Um, and they're murdered on the field of Kar- the plains of Karbala in Iraq. And Karbala has become a central, maybe the central foundational story for Shia Islam. A great deal of their history, their spirituality and their theology revolves around that event and all of the spiritual and theological implications of that historical event. And so the book is about predictions made to a variety of people, usually by an angel, of this event. It's made predictions that begin before his birth, at his birth, during his early life, And then finally, even after his death, there are angels warning of retribution that's coming for this. So it's it's the classic kind of event in the Shia Sunni story. There isn't any other event that so encapsulates 
all of the political, all of the spiritual, all of the theological motifs that run through that terrible split. Um, and, and that's what the book has tried to capture. Again, introducing hopefully to a Western audience the issue of Karbala. They, they, they see the, the Arba'in, the great march of, of Shia faith. In, it'll happen in September this year, and it happens every year. It's the largest Islamic gathering in, 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 in the year. Western audiences see that without fully understanding what it's about. And hopefully the book addresses that, that gap in knowledge. Yeah, you, you mentioned that angels either bring very good news or very bad news. And in this instance, it's an angel bringing very bad news, right? Well, it's a mix, actually, because, because I mean, generally, yes, absolutely correct. It's bad news. But some of the narratives begin with the announcement to Muhammad, not to Fatima, the mother, but to her father, um, Muhammad, that he is going to have a son. In fact, it's a grandson, not a son. So quite often the narrative begins with the angel announcing the news of a great birth. In this case, quite a miraculous birth, the details surrounding it. But the birth of a hero, that is the, that is the, the kind of subtext. The birth of a hero who's going to do something marvelous. But the thing he's going to do is going to be horrendously tragic for him and for his loved ones. So it's this bittersweet announcement. And the passage in which Gabriel is, is, is portrayed as racing between heaven and earth is this passage where, where Muhammad and Fatima are saying, we don't want a son who's going to be murdered by our own community. We don't need that. And, and the angel is trying to make this message known that you accept in submission that this is how it's going to be. So, so the, the, the message is always bittersweet because, of course, Shia Islam thrives on a spirituality of weakness, uh, very much like Christianity, that when people are at their weakest, often that is when they are at their strongest, that paradox of faith. So the Battle of Karbala, despite it appearing to be a terrible defeat, is for Shia Islam a great spiritual victory in that evil is going to be defeated in the end. So the news is bittersweet. It's, it's tragic in the sense of what happened, but it's it's powerful in the sense of what this event will mean and what this martyrdom will mean, because, of course, martyrdom is another crucial uh, narrative in the Shia story, that this great martyr, in a sense, is going to redeem Islam. Now, I use that word very carefully because, because it, redemption as such doesn't exist in Islam. It's a Christian concept and a Jewish concept. In fact, it's Jewish borrowed by Christianity and, and theologized. But in Islam, because there's no original sin, because, because their understanding of sin is different, there's no redemption. But there is this idea, and it was first expressed by a very good Islamic theologian who taught at Hartford Seminary in America, and who died a few months ago, um, Mahmoud Ayyub, who said, in a sense, the death of al-Hussein redeemed Islam. In other words, bought it back from its shabby state under Yazid and his leadership and made possible again the living out of Islamic faith. Now, that's a, a very debatable use of terminology, but that's the way it's understood by many. It's a redemption. And so it's good news that Islam is going to be bought back or purchased back from a particularly bad leader. So... 
Maybe we could talk a little bit more about the Battle of Karbala, because if you're if the intended audience for the book uh, are primarily non-Muslims or people who aren't necessarily familiar with the story of Imam Hussein, how is it so that uh, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad is rebelling against another leader rather than finding himself in the position of leadership? So you know. The, it, it lies in the in the the different model of leadership in Sunni and Shia Islam. In Sunni Islam, the caliph is a political and a spiritual leader, but in in Shia Islam, the imam is divinely appointed, has supreme knowledge that is given by God, and the line of imams is meant to be unbroken. In other words, from the beginning, God has sent the imam, who is the one who makes sure that that the text of Revelation is protected, that it is correctly interpreted, correctly lived. So in that, just as a sidebar, there's a huge similarity between Shia Islam and Catholic Christianity. The idea of an unbroken line of central authority that is divinely appointed and that is appointed specifically as a matter of common logic that the Revelation needs to be protected and preserved and correctly interpreted. Well, after the death, the murder of the, 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 the fourth of the caliphs, who was Ali ibn, ibn, ibn Abi ibn Talib, the father of al-Hussein, uh, Hussein's brother Hassan takes over, and then there is this terrible calamity in which he has to step back and power is taken by a man called Muawiyah. And at that moment, the imam, in a sense, loses his position of primacy and becomes... Um, the imam who is still imam but functioning in the background while political leadership has been taken from him. Now, in the Islamic scheme of things, according to the Shia, the imam holds both political and spiritual power. He is That is the whole point of Khomeini's revolution, that the idea that the, the, the jurist, the religious jurist, should run the country because he has both political and, and spiritual knowledge. So at that moment... Um, Muawiyah takes over with with all kinds of promises of of what he's going to do. And then he does the the fateful thing of handing on to his son in a sort of monarchical sense the the reins of power. And his son is not famous for his piety or his morality of life. Even the Sunni texts recognize this. And so Hussein feels the need to rebel, that number one, Muawiyah has broken his, his promises. Number two, political power has been removed from the pious leader and put into the hands of the impious leader and and hence the rebellion but it's civil war you know so islam almost begins with a, a terrible act where a younger brother is killed by an older brother it's the sort of cain and abel narrative and it's just a disastrous thing and it it has continued as a it's a continuum in history the shia the sunni shia struggle has continued and continues to this day. Sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's violent and powerful, but it's an ongoing struggle between, if you like, two brothers, both of whom claim that their vision of Islam, the history of Islam, and the way Islam should be lived is is the correct way. And it's a struggle that seems to me is not going to be ended. Um, So that's how it is that, I mean, to the shame of, of Islam, in a sense, you know, the grandson of the prophet is murdered by Muslims. And this is at the heart of all of these Karbala dreams. Your own community, Muhammad gets told. It's not somebody else. It's your own community who's going to perpetuate this act. And it's a 
it's that is very bad news, of course. And the the battle itself takes place in the first days of the Islamic month of Muharram at in the deserts of Karbala. Can you talk a little bit about the battle itself? Because that also plays a role in the in the book. So Al Hussein with uh, his wives and his children and about 70 or so companions, they leave Mecca and they start heading to Kufa, um, which is an, a, a, a quite a Shia stronghold, a great center of Shia support. The Kufa residents offer him all kinds of promises that they would support him, but then for a variety of reasons, they back down, including the fact that they are, they are won over by the bribery of the caliph who, who spreads threats and bribery among them, so that by the time Al Hussein's tiny group reach the plains of Karbala, still en route, they suddenly have lost all support and are surrounded by a massive Sunni army, which deprives them of water. Uh, in the, the sense being, that, and there are two senses at play. The one is that there might have been a sense that we could deprive them of water and force them to go back, to leave, or to submit. There's another sense that we're going to massacre them and just get rid of them because they're a political threat. So this tiny group is deprived of water from the Euphrates, um, and and on the 10th day of Muharram, this battle begins, although it's not a battle in the ordinary sense of the word. It's not two armies facing each other. It's one single member of Al-Hussein's party going out individually, usually chanting magnificent and quite insulting Arabic poetry, and standing before this army and, of course, being martyred. So it's not a battle in the ordinary sense. It's traumatic for these 70 or so. Of course, they are all finally killed. And the women and children led at that stage by Zainab, sister of Hussein, who becomes something of a matriarch and shows herself to be really tough on the battlefield. She doesn't fight, but she she exits her tent and strides into the battle to uh, to do a number of things, including lecture some of the Sunni soldiers. And she becomes the matriarch. They're taken back. They're made to face this dreadful governor, Ibn Ziyad, in, in Kufa. And then finally, they get to Damascus. Again, they have to face the interrogation of the Caliph Yazid. They're house under house arrest. And eventually, they're all sent back emotionally, physically, spiritually damaged in many ways. They're sent back to, to Medino where after a year or so Zainab dies. So it's a, it's a traumatic event, and easily in the narrative we forget the horror of the thing, that, you know, that the whole family was basically wiped out um, by, by their own fellow, their co-religionists. Um, so it's become the central annual commemoration uh, through the days of Muharram leading up until the 10th day of Muharram, Ashura, all, out, all over the Shia world, there are all kinds of commemorations in words, in ritual actions, all of which say the same thing. Had I been there, I would have fought and died with Al-Hussein. I wish I could have been there. All of it says that in a variety of ways. And so these, these dreams... Uh... In some sense, you talk about these dreams coming to a figure named Umm Salama. Can you talk about who Umm Salama is? Umm Salama, Salama is one of the most delightful characters in all of Islamic history. She is one of the, at the state, widows of Muhammad. She's an older woman, um, older than, than some of his other wives. She serves as a sort of surrogate grandmother 
to Muhammad's grandchildren. Um, not that not that their parents are not present, but in a sense, you know, Muhammad is a man who is, uh, you know, has got a fairly heavy schedule, and so Um Salama looks after the, the, the these two boys, especially Hassan and Hussein. She is deeply devoted to them and is a sort of a surrogate grandmother. Um, and she is a central character in the sense that um, Al-Hussein comes to bid her farewell to say that he's now on his way to Kufa and he's convinced that this is going to end in his death. She tries to dissuade him, of course, because she is deeply devoted to him. And there is at the heart of this the famous story um, in which um, she is given sometimes by Hussein himself, more often by Muhammad, she is given before his death, she is given this little glass vial containing some of the dust or the sand from Karbala with the prediction that on the day that this dust or sand turns to blood, it is the sign that Hussein has been killed. So she watches this vial daily since the time of Muhammad's death until the, the Battle of Karbala. So that's a significant period of years, 50 or more years. She watches this glass vial every day until one night it does indeed turn to blood. And that is the sign that the prediction has come true and Hussein has been, Al-Hussein has been murdered. So she's the first person to lament publicly um, his death. Um, and, and she starts that tradition of lament. At least she be- helps to begin the tradition of lament. But she is an enormously attractive figure in that she is the kind of grandmother type who, in whom you can place absolute trust. And she is clearly deeply loved and serves as quite a good bridge between Shia and Sunni Islam because she is known as a transmitter of traditions by both the Sunni and the Shia. They both trust her implicitly. And so... Once again, you have in religion a female figure who stands in the gap between the two and attempts, in a sense, to hold them together. So she plays a central part in the book. And again, I lament that no Islamic scholar has written a proper biography of this woman, like Khadija, Muhammad's first wife. The the, the texts don't exist. And it's extraordinary for me that women who are so loved have not been given the honor of their own biography. Uh, if I could, I would, but I, <laughs> I can't really just keep doing all this. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that, as with Fatima, so with Um Salama, eventually there will be a proper academic biography of, uh, of an extraordinarily powerful and influential woman. Could you talk a little bit about, you make this distinction between dreams and visions, can you talk a little bit about the role of dreams in Islam, maybe versus visions? So it's a bit of guesswork because it's hard to know. With the words that Arabic uses, um, the, the word it uses a number of words. Sometimes it uses the word for sleep, manam, to describe a dream. Sometimes it, it uses the word ru'a, which is which is a dream, and sometimes it uses the word hulm, uh, which is which is a bad dream. So in, in Muhammad's own mind and in his speech, there is a, a, a dualism between dreams that come from God, which are good dreams and which leave you with a sense of um, satisfaction or security, or and then bad dreams which come from shaitan, 
Muhammad himself was greatly interested in dreams and in their interpretation and made it clear more than once to his own followers, if any of you has a dream, come and tell me what it is and I will interpret it. So in the books of Hadith, we have numerous dream interpretations you know, tackled by Muhammad. It interests me in that in early Christianity, a man like Tertullian, who was a bit of an old heretic, but a really interesting man and really, really intelligent. He was convinced that dreams were important. So you're looking within the first two or three centuries after Christ. He was convinced that dreams could serve a religious purpose. But the early church fathers were very nervous of dream interpretation and, in fact, threatened to excommunicate anybody or maybe refused to baptize anybody who was an interpreter of dreams. It was understood as a form of witchcraft. In Islam, shortly after the death of Muhammad, Muslims began to say, well, the prophet himself was interested in dreams. He himself interpreted dreams. Maybe dreams could be a continued means of encounter with the divine. And so from the beginning in Islam, dreams and dream interpretation became crucially important. And in almost all the great books of Hadith, there are chapters on dreams and dream interpretation. They play a far bigger role in, from a religious point of view in Islam than they do in Christianity or Judaism, as they do, I suppose, if you're a Jungian analyst, you know, dreams play quite an important role in some of the strands of psychoanalysis. So it's not that they're just nonsense. People really do draw all kinds of messages and inspiration. In this case, you're talking about either a dream when people are asleep or a vision, which I would translate as a waking dream, things that people see. So Abraham in the Hebrew scriptures, he sees these three visitors who turn out to be angels, whereas others like Isaac, they dream of angels while they're actually asleep. Then they're not awake. Angels coming up and down a ladder from heaven. I, I That's the definition I made because it's hard based on language alone to know, is this a dream while you're asleep or are you awake? So a dream or a waking vision, I would call them. And, and in the final analysis, they're both the same thing in the sense that a message is imparted, which is either wonderfully good or terribly bad, or in this case, kind of bittersweet. And angels play a key role in both dreams and waking dreams. Well, they do, because in, in, in the, again, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, reading, reading the language carefully, they seem to be a, a metaphor or not a metaphor, an, an analogy in the sense that, that sometimes it suggests that it's actually God speaking and at other times the angel. And sometimes the language is mixed up. So it, it begins with an angel saying something and then suddenly the angel talks as though the angel is actually God speaking. So because in Hebrew thought you can't see God and survive, obviously the angel takes the place, takes the physical place of a divine encounter. Well, it's the same in Islam. Of course, you can't hear the voice of God. So they play a massive role in Revelation, but also Muhammad throughout his life, judging by the texts, not just Karbala, but by all kinds of other texts, he appears to have had an ongoing encounter with, at least with Jibreel, sometimes with other angels, not just bringing public revelation, but also private revelation, things that affected the prophet himself or his own family, um, and that didn't necessarily need to be shared. 
there are one or two moments in Islam where the angel is visible, usually in the form of a, of a, a handsome man, which is the kind of Quranic idea, uh, a traveler, for example, whose robe is spotless and who doesn't look as though he's been traveling, but he has. And occasionally people see angels and Muhammad then says that was Jibreel. But generally it's an invisible presence or an, uh, you know, a presence that speaks words in a particular way without being seen. Certainly dreams and angels in dreams are far more prominent in the Islamic text and the interpretation of dreams also. In Christian texts, you don't have whole books about Christian interpretation of dreams. It's just not a thing. But in Islam, it's a big thing. Yeah, you, you write about people seeing Muhammad with another man and they're mistaking this man for one of Muhammad's companions. Yeah. And later Muhammad says, no, actually, that was Gabriel. Actually, that yeah. was Jibreel. It's quite an interesting story because the companion, and I don't remember his name, but he, he was the companion who, for some reason, Jibreel decided to impersonate occasionally. So walkers, people passing by, thought they were seeing the companion. In one particular case, a very famous um, transmitter called Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas is a young transmitter, hugely popular, greatly trustworthy in, in Islam. And he, with his father, sees this young, this companion talking to Muhammad. And, but his father doesn't. Uh, and and he, he his father says, which man? I don't know what man you're talking about. And, it, and then Muhammad clarifies, well, that was that was Jibreel. Um, that happens more than once. I think Um Salama also sees this companion and she doesn't realize she's seen Jibreel. Uh, the famous um, Hadith Jibreel is a, a famous tradition in which this traveler appears to a group of Muslims and explains the basics of Islam to them and then disappears, and it's only afterwards that it's realized this was an angelic presence. So generally the angels are not seen. Um, I don't think in any of the encounters in the house of Umm Salama. So in her house, Muhammad meets with Jibreel, who actually comes to give the story of what's going to happen. She is told by him to guard the door because Muhammad does not want to be disturbed. But of course, little Hussein, who must have been maybe six, he darts past her because he wants to be with his grandfather. And it's a very moving account. And he ends up sitting on his grandfather's shoulders while his grandfather talks to Jibreel. Um, Jibreel asks the famous question, do you love him? And Muhammad said, of course I love him. He's more than life. And then gets told this prediction. But there's no intimation that little Hussein sees the angel. And there's no intimation that uh, Umm Salama actually sees this visitor. Only Muhammad seems to see him um, so, yeah. And you give different accounts of this event in the book with slightly different details and slightly different ways of telling the story. Things are brought in, things are taken out. This sounds oh. ultimately... Oh, no, go ahead. Are you talking about the Umm Salama story in yeah, our house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds ultimately like, a, like a, an extremely Shi'i narrative. But you complicate that through your sources. Could you speak about the research that went into this book? Yeah, I, I determined from the beginning that I didn't want to create a Shia narrative or a Shia apologetic. In other words, I wanted people to be able to read these texts and say, well, there's good evidence for whatever I'm describing. There's good evidence also in the Sunni texts. 
And so wherever I could use Sunni texts, whether I was writing about Lady Fatima or Zainab or the dreams of Karbala, I attempted to trace some of these stories in the important Sunni texts. And sure enough, I did find them. So, you know, the visit of an angel to the house of Umm Salama is not a sheer invention. It's quite clearly described in some of the, the Sunni texts. This for me is of, of great importance because there is always this threat when you're talking about particular religious families. I don't call them sects because sects has a certain baggage. But, you know, that various religious groupings try to find um, divine support for their stance. You know, so it it would be a great thing if, you know, if an angel was to explain to me that I was right and you were wrong, because that would really give me give me a divine a divine assurance. So there is this accusation that many of the stories that I recounted are nothing more than a sheer invention in order to prop up the story of Al-Hussein and to make it sound as though his revolution or his rebellion had divine approval. But the fact that these texts are found widespread also in the most important Sunni historians and transmitters of hadith suggest to me that it's not simply a sheer invention. Now, these stories, as you read them, they become increasingly more embellished. But then religious stories generally do. All religious stories in all religious traditions become embellished over the centuries. One of the great moves in Christianity uh, in Germany under people like von Harnack were, was to, to, to remove all of this embellishment and get back to the original text. Um, people like um, Rudolf Bult, uh, Bultmann, also the German theologian, said, let's demythologize the scriptures. Well, but that's because texts, not scriptures so much, but texts and stories become embellished over the centuries. But, but for me, this is an important part of religious expression. You know, popular piety is the place where real religion exists. It's not in the orthodoxy taught by the central authority, whether that be the Vatican or Al-Azhar. That's not where real religion is found. The truth is that for better or for worse, profound religion is found in popular piety. So, you know, you can talk about the orthodoxy of the Islam of Al-Azhar in Egypt, but if you go and live in Cairo, you see Muslims going to pray and at the tombs of holy ones, Muslim holy ones. That's the real religion. It's not the orthodox expression. And in the same way, I think that these stories of angels and dreams, they, they express a particular religious truth. In Islam, secular history and sacred history are not separable. They just run together. In, 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 in secular history, sacred history doesn't play much role. But in Islam, the two run on parallel lines. And, and therefore, I know that textual analysis is crucial, but that's in the West, in Islamic studies, that's all we seem to do is textual analysis. Sometimes you just want to read the story and enjoy whatever it holds. You know, so I read these texts the way I read much of the Bible. You know, when I read the story of, of Jonah in the whale, I don't get caught up in historical truth about whether a big whale swallowed him. That's not the issue at all. The issue is the underlying story portraying a message. It's the same with Islamic texts. I attempt to read them for what they are. They are religious texts. They're not 
they're not on the same line as biographical texts or historical texts. They are profoundly religious stories that hold a kernel of meaning and truth for people. And I sometimes just want to read the text and enjoy it. You know, you can read Shakespeare and analyze him until the cows come home, but sometimes you just want to read Shakespeare or Goethe or any of the great great authors just to enjoy the sheer beauty of literature and to, to learn something. I mean, you know, to pick something up from it. So I do get shouted at by a variety of scholars that I, I don't use the text critically. And this is true, I don't, because I don't particularly want to. If I wanted to, I would do it. But I really do want to give a basic story that can be read and understood by anybody, not just by an academic, but, you know, the whole point of teaching is that you need to take complex things or things that are apparently complex and just open up for everybody to read. That's what I want to do. That's what teaching is about for me. You know, if I want to write a book about text analysis, I can do that if I have to. But I'm far more interested in taking a story which has lots of powerful elements and lots of elements and narratives that are that are comparable to elements and narratives in other religious stories, in other traditions, and simply offer these stories to people and say, here's a really great, inspiring woman or inspiring man. Let's let's see what we can draw from this. I'd like to change gears uh, for a minute and read a passage from page 167. You write, this is a book about encounters, asleep or awake with angels or jinn or exalted Islamic personalities returning in visions to warn, lament, or chastise. So we've spoken about angels and we've spoken about exalted Islamic personalities. Could you talk a little bit about jinn? Yeah, I was going to say to you, we need to just clarify for people who don't know, we're not talking about alcohol. We're talking about a very particular thing. And that is the, you know, again, one has to remember that in Islam, the supernatural world is alive and kicking. It's on the move. And there is a whole lot of involvement in on an ordinary, everyday level, people's lives by angels, but also by this rather curious group of of mischievous, I think is the only word, spirits. So the jinn are a, a group of spirits who are sometimes wicked, sometimes just playful and mischievous. They, they um, are generally regarded as naughty rather than nice, um, but, and, and that they interfere quite a lot with people's lives. They're not demons or devils. That's quite a harsh, they're, 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 they're simply spirits. Um, who have their own nature, their own genre and species, if you like. Um, and, and the jinn, uh, despite everything, the jinn lament the death of Hussein. At least Umm Salama hears them on the night air lamenting. Um, it, it was, a, it was a, a facet of the story I came across years ago. And the idea of hearing an unidentified voice on the night air kind of grabbed my imagination. I thought, well... That's really interesting because that voice could have been anything or anyone. And so I looked quite deeply at that element. And certainly on the night that Hussein was killed, according to both Sunni and Shia texts, the voices of the jinn were heard in lament. In other words, the crime was so great that even the evil or mischievous spirits understand some, you know, you've gone too far. And, and lament a terrible action in the same way that I, I said in the book, even the angels seem to draw back in horror that 
the grandson of the prophet is murdered. So the jinn are an interesting topic. And the, the name jinn, just as a matter of interest, and I can only tell you this because I was teaching this the other day to my students and it's still fresh. The, 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 the name in Arabic comes from the root of a word that means to cover or to hide. So, you know, a garden, a jannah is a place that is hidden by trees and a grave same root is a place that hides a body. Well, the jinn are these hidden spirits who come out to, to kind of molest your daily activities and really create a bit of havoc and then disappear again um, on a variety of levels, but that even they would, would step back and lament is the suggestion that this crime of killing the grandson of the Prophet of Islam, nothing will ever take away this, the shame and the scar of this crime. So they also are part of the dream narratives very much. There is so much packed in this book. And I have to say, I know you said that the intended audience isn't necessarily uh, Shia because they don't have much to learn from a Catholic priest. However, as a Shi'i Muslim, I felt like I learned a lot from reading this book. It was an excellent, uh, well-written narrative. I, a lot of the details I hadn't heard before. Um, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad because I, I enjoyed writing it. You know, it wasn't a task. I was at my desk at every moment, including lazy Sundays, because I really was enjoying reading the texts, translating them, discovering little bits of information that absolutely fascinated me. Um, and I think that's what it's meant to be. I, I don't think it's meant to be a bind writing a book. I think it's meant to be something that fills you with a certain passion that you want other people to know that sounds like a cliche, but I really do think that's important. And that's how I felt about the Fatima book and the Zainab book. I fell in love with Zainab. I think she was just this marvelous, supportive big sister. Oh, in, 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 in the case of um, uh, Hussein, little sister, but nonetheless quite close to him in age. And she just encapsulated so many of, of the women who I've met and known over the years who have been strong and supportive and and fearful of terrible things, but willing to take a stand if they had to. She encapsulates all of that for me. So I love writing about her, kind of running out of ideas now of what to write about, because it has to be something that grabs my attention, really. So, Well, you've, you've written about Fatima, you've written about Zainab, you've written about Um Salama. Now you could write about Khadija. Well, I've got a number of pots boiling on the stove. Um, I, I always thought, you know, another figure in Shia Islam who is fantastic and not written about, of course, is Al-Abbas, the half-brother of Hussein. He is adored by Shia everywhere, but hardly anything written about him. Well, there's a good reason for that, and that is because the sources are very, very few. In fact, they're dangerously few. And I don't want to write hagiography. I like hagiography. I think it has a place, but I don't want to write that. So I've started working on his life. Might just be a very short book with a long introduction, but I started working on his life because I think he needs a, a biography. And I'm returning to Fatima because I, I like Fatima. And I, I want, I've just read a very good text, which is going to be published soon, uh, I think by Cambridge Press, by an American Muslim theologian. She has written a feminist appraisal of Fatima, which is superbly written. I mean, it's just really good theology. And that's inspired me to return to Fatima. So I might, I might tinker about, you know, with Abbas and also with something a little more in-depth on Fatima, because 
sort of Fatima studies have taken off. There are people writing about her and unpacking her history. Um, and I like that. I think it's important. For me as a Catholic, she, she plays a role that's quite close to Mary in Catholicism, Fatima in, in Shia Islam. You know, the, the, the sinless virgin mother who weeps over her children. There's a very Marian element there. So it's easy for me to draw parallels. So, yeah, I've got a few things going, but, but it's, it's, you know, as long as they're things that grab my attention, I can do them because I'm not actually an academic. I just fake it quite well. I teach. That's what I, my job is. I love teaching. And, you know, I leave academics to do academic stuff. And I just like teaching and researching and writing bits for people. So, so you know, these two things I will work on now for a bit. And then I'm going to retire by the sea somewhere <laughs> forever. <laughs> but continue writing just by oh, the sea. Yes, yes. Jotting away, yeah. <laughs> Father Kohesi, when you publish your next work, whether it's a short book on Ibn Abbas or a book on Fatima, I'd love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for coming. It's a great pleasure. The book is Angels Hastening, published with Georgia's Press in 2021. Father Christopher Kohesi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.